right here on this spot, there should be a monument, a memorial to what happened here. There should be one, but there isn't. In fact, right behind us, as we turn around and face the bridge that crosses the Savannah River leading back to Augusta, Georgia, there is a small bronze plaque that honors the man for whom this bridge will be named. But there is nothing here to mark the events that happened along the banks of the Savannah River on July 4th through the 9th of 1876. In places like this all over South Carolina, Mississippi, Georgia, Louisiana, and other former Confederate states, there were events that occurred which, in the context of their times, seemed mm, normal, if not expected. A few of those events, if any of them, are remembered today. But here on these banks, right here, there was once a bustling and very busy railroad cargo town. It was a river port along the Savannah River. The rail, rail lines were, ran right over there, just, li- just along that tree line out of sight to the left, where that uh, barrier is right down there, is Railroad Street. This was a an impressive and very busy place, but by the time the Civil War rolled around, things had changed a little bit. That just to the north of the of the town there, a railroad bridge had been built, still stands today, that carried railroad cargo from Augusta now instead of the little town that was on the north bank in South Carolina. That town, by the way, known as Hamburg. It no longer exists today. All that is left is pretty much just this little corner here where there should be a monument. There should be a memorial. But there's nothing. At least not here. And part of the reason it's not here is what we're going to talk about. The end of Reconstruction, this little town became a focal point of Freedmen's residency. Hamburg became a town that was almost entirely occupied by former slaves and their families. It was thriving. It was growing, and under the direct authorization of the Republican governor of the state, Hamburg had been authorized to form an armed militia company under the command of its leader, Doc Adams. On this particular sacred day, not just a sacred, not just Independence Day, but the 100th Independence Day celebration, the militia company was marching right along the main street, which kind of disappears back into that tree line right now. A little over 100 yards away from there is now a golf course. But they marched along that main street, proudly exercising their young freedoms. What happened that afternoon would help set into motion events and effects which reverberate to this day. The, that events such as what happened here have been almost, if not entirely, erased from history, replaced by myths and legends, and everybody knows isms, was no accident. It was intentional, and it's been effective. And it has left us grappling with the after-effects of our nation's original sin. Though places such as this are many, it's here that we're going to begin our story for a couple of reasons. One, it was among the first of events like this here in South Carolina. There were others nationwide, but here in South Carolina, 
in the pivotal year of 1876. This was amongst the first. Second, this event was deadly. Lives were lost here. Those lives were long, long forgotten, and even ignored. And perhaps a third reason is that even to this day, 144 years, almost to the day later, no person, not a single person, has ever been held accountable for what happened here. No one has stood trial for it. No one paid any penalty whatsoever for it. And until 2006, no official account of what happened here would even mention all of the men who would die here. If there is any weight to the cry of police or authority accountability in the extrajudicial deaths of black men in America, it starts here. What was once the town of Hamburg, South Carolina. Here, in later years, a new bridge would be built. You can still, if you look hard, see to the right the pylons that held the bridge that was there the day this happened. But a new bridge was built, and in later years it carries a plaque that honors another man. But not the men who would fall here today. July 4th, 1876, in what would be known as the Hamburg Massacre. We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men gathered in Philadelphia to consider how to make the government of the United States more perfect. Over the course of five months, they argued, debated, considered and rejected ideas, notions, and various systems. In the end, they created the Constitution of the United States, a document predicated on the idea that men can rule themselves by law. This is Constitution Thursday, a time when we look at the history, ideas, arguments, and interpretations of the Constitution, from its original creation to today, and how it affects our lives now. The right of the citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, a previous condition of servitude. That is the 15th Amendment to the United States Constitution, ratified in 1870. And it plays into what we are beginning to talk about now. We move to what I uh, euphemistically call a series called 1876. I don't have a subtitle for it. I'm still working on that, but we'll come up with one eventually. Want to get a hold of me? The text machine at area code 209-565-DAVE. 209-565-3283. The email dave at thedavebowmanshow.com. And, of course, we're on the web. Look for The Dave Bowman Show on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, and, of course, at thedavebowmanshow.com. Ego beberi capula salali viverve. I drink coffee so that others might live. 
Well, like so many people, I'm watching what's happening in our country today. And I realize that there's more depth to what we are being told. This is a story that goes back a very long way, far beyond just a few years of police misconduct and the like. This is a story that goes back literally to the very beginning. We aren't going to spend a lot of time on the pre-Revolutionary War, the Revolutionary War, the pre-Civil War era, for a couple of reasons. One, because in those times, things were different. Things legally were were not what they are post-Civil War, and post of the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. I want to focus on a specific year, 1876, because this is the year that so much of what we're dealing with now is rooted in. It is really the beginning of the lost cause myth. It is really the point at which betrayals become, I don't know, the norm more than anything else. There is a whole lot of, a whole lot of meat here. And it is a demonstration of something that I say so often, which is that anyone who says to you, we've never been more divided, doesn't know anything about American history. And the fact that they're saying that proves that they don't know anything about that history. In 1875, things began to ramp up. Reconstruction was putting a great strain on the nation. President Grant was struggling with how to maintain the Union again as southern states began to deeply resent the presence of what they called radical Republicans in their state legislatures, in their governorships, and supported by the Union Army, the the, the United States Army, to keep them in place because there was a lot of uh, blowback about it. In Mississippi, in 1875, there came to be known something as the Mississippi Plan. Now, the Mississippi Plan is not well known in history. It's not something that we talk about a lot. It's not something that we uh, we want to hear about because it's not a good thing. The idea here was that the Bourbon Democrats, these are Democrats who are rich, white, they are racist, they believe in white supremacy, they are the former Confederate leaders. They are tired of the Republican, particularly carpetbagging Republican ruling of their state in Mississippi. And so they come up with a plan that will get rid of it, that will overthrow the Republican Party in the state and will regain control of the state legislature and the executive back to the Democrat Party. Now, keep in mind that this is prior to incorporation. This is prior to the concepts that we hold as normal today. And so there is a strong belief still in the concept of states' rights. And while the state right to own another person has been permanently exiled via the 13th Amendment, there is still a strong belief that the states have the rights to pass laws that we would describe as discriminatory and racially biased. This is why they want to regain that control. To do this in Mississippi, they will use violence 
and threats of violence. They will have no qualms whatsoever of intimidation by openly displaying arms and strength. They will march in the streets. And an organization that we will talk more about in the coming weeks called the Red Shirts becomes the paramilitary arm of the Democrat Party in in the South, and particularly in Mississippi. They will literally behave like thugs. I mean, they will beat people. They will smack people around. They will intimidate them and scare them because they want one of two things to happen. They want to persuade 10 to 15% of scallywags, these are Republican whites, to vote Democrat. They want to scare them into voting Democrat because if you don't vote Democrat, something bad might happen to you or your farm or your family or your wife or your daughter or whatever. And so their goal is to scare them into vote just 10 to 15%. They don't need a lot. They just need a, a group of them to do this. Also formed at the same time are what are known as rifle clubs. Rifle clubs are specific in their mission in that they are formed to intimidate freedmen, former slaves, who are now serving in state legislatures, city councils, mayors, farmers, businessmen. These are are black men and women, who are to be intimidated by these rifle clubs. They are to be scared. And as many as 300 of them will will be killed. These freedmen will be killed in Mississippi. And that becomes part of the problem. The Mississippi plan creates so much problem down in Mississippi that President Grant is afraid to act. President Grant, the man who one at Vicksburg, unconditional surrender grant, is afraid to act. He is afraid of being accused of bayonet rule, that is, ruling the South by force rather than by, you know, cooperation and, and Republican values. And he doesn't want that. The carpetbaggers will end up fleeing the state of Mississippi. They run the the, the Republicans and, and, and uh, folks who moved to Mississippi to serve as part of the Reconstruction government, they run away. They leave. The, the carpet-bagging whites, the scallywags leave. Hundreds, like I said, of freedmen are outright murdered in the state of Mississippi in 1875. All of this intimidation ultimately works as the Bourbon Democrats retake the state from the Republicans and immediately begin to pass laws restricting the rights of African-Americans former slaves, to vote, to own property, to do things, all in the face of the 15th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, and the 13th Amendment to a degree. And this, this will reverberate. I mean, it will, it will echo right down into the 1950s, some of these laws that will be passed by these Bourbon Democrats after they retake the state under the Mississippi plan won't be overturned until the 1960s. It's, it's a little scary. So successful is the Mississippi plan that the following year, 1876, when South Carolina has its gubernatorial election, the Mississippi plan is adopted in the state of South Carolina by the Bourbon Democrats. Red shirts are formed, rifle clubs are formed, and South Carolina becomes the second state and the first state in the year of the centennial election to begin to practice the 
the Mississippi plan with the with the with the same intentions that they had in Mississippi. But now there's a little more urgency to this because this is also a national election year. And as we're going to talk about in a future episode of this, the national election, General Grant will choose not to run for a third term. And this will create chaos. The leading Republican to replace him is problematic. The Democrats, <laughs> they're pretty excited about the idea that they may be able to take the retake the White House. People are getting tired of the Republican scandals and the the issues that are coming along economically. And, and so they're looking at this as an opportunity to regain the power that they held and in, in the antebellum conditions. And for the first time, they are planning on using this Mississippi plan in multiple states to retake those governments to try to force the national government to re- behave the way they wanted to. The South Carolina election features Wade Hampton III, who is a former Confederate general. How can he run for office, you might ask? Well, there was uh, part of the 14th Amendment maintained that such men as Wade Hampton had to retake a a loyalty oath to the United States. They were granted clemency. They were granted uh, forgiveness for their actions against the United States, and they were restored to citizenship. The current governor of South Carolina is one Daniel Henry Chamberlain. He is, of course, for all practical purposes, a a carpetbagger. He is a member of the Reconstruction government. And he is close to General Grant, but he is not he's not a strong man by any stretch of the imagination. And so as the election for the South Carolina government begins to heat up in the summer of 1876. This Mississippi plan is put into effect. On the streets of Hamburg, which is a small town, as I told you before, it's a small little railroad town uh, directly opposite the river from Augusta, Georgia. It is a freedman town. It is populated almost entirely by former slaves and their families. There are a couple of white people that live there, but not not a lot. It's It's... It's a thriving little town for for former slaves. And it is here that on July 4th, 1876, the, munition, the militia company, which has been authorized to have arms by the governor of the state, is exercising in the middle of the street behind us there. Right off to, the, uh, to my right, your left, I'm sure, as you look at the screen. Back there in that tree line is where the main street would be in those days. Just past that tree line now, it's a golf course. Not the Augusta National Golf Course, but a golf course. And and in this hot, dusty era where the streets weren't really paved, these men are proud to exercise their freedoms that they have they have earned and they've fought for and that this nation has has finally come to its senses and via the 15th Amendment and the 14th Amendment and the 13th Amendment, made sure that they have the rights to vote, that they're citizens, that these are free men. The very essence of all men are created equal. They are carrying out this exercise in the middle of the street on July 4th, 1876. While accounts vary as to precisely exactly what happened, we do know 
that a local farmer from the other side of the bridge, the Georgian, rolled in in his wagon and decided to try to go down the main street through the formation of, of, of the black troops. He was rebuffed and told, there's plenty of room to go around. Go around. He refused. The commanding officer of the of the militia company, a guy by the name of Doc Adams, told him, "No, we're not. We're we're practicing here. We, you can't just ride right through the middle of our formation, especially when the road is wide enough for you to go around." Man refused to go around. Words were exchanged, and ultimately, Doc Adams relented and said, "Fine." Fall out. They fell, the troops fell out. The, the man was allowed to go through to wherever it is that he was going. And it seemed like that would be the end of the incident, except that a complaint was filed and a, an arrest warrant was issued for Doc Adams for impeding traffic in the middle of the street. He was issued an arrest warrant. A few days later, he attempted to go to the, uh, the, 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 the courtroom there where the judge was a man by the name of Prince Rivers. Prince Rivers is one of the most fascinating characters I've discovered in this whole process of, of uh, American history. Prince Rivers is a former slave who escaped. He joined the Union Army. He became a very, very successful soldier, learned to read and write while he was a soldier, is noted as one of the most educated men in the history of South Carolina. In fact, he will be one of the three men that helps found Aiken County, South Carolina, which is where Hamburg will ultimately be located before it disappears off the map. He is very intelligent. He is very educated, and he becomes the judge for Hamburg City. As he attempts to hear the case of Doc Adams, who is accused of blocking the street, there is a, an arrival of over a hundred, or what are known as redeemers or red shirts, these are armed white men who come to Hamburg for the sole purpose of preventing Prince Rivers from hearing the case of Doc Adams blocking the street for a white man who wanted to go by. I know you hear this today and you go, what? This is American history, folks. This is what actually happened. Prince Rivers, who is a very educated and very intelligent and very wise man, thinks to himself, this is going to go badly. This is going to be a problem. The militia is called out to defend the courtroom against these hundred-plus white redeemers. There is a confrontation. The redeemers are angry, and shots are fired. Prince Rivers convinces Doc Adams and the and the militia to lay down their arms, or tries to anyway. He's not as successful as he hopes he would be. Some of them do, some of them don't. But the vast majority of them, about 40 or so, end up locked up in the armory, surrounded by these, these white-armed redeemers, these bourbon Democrats, these red shirts, who are trying to intimidate people into not voting Republicans into office in the state of South Carolina. Ultimately, Prince Rivers negotiates the surrender, as it were, of the, of the armory, and the, 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 the militiamen will come out of the armory unarmed, and apparently that'll be the end of this whole thing, right? That'll be the, that'll be the decision-making point of, of everything that's about to happen, except that when they come out, 
Shots are fired. The white redeemers decide this is our opportunity, and contemporary news accounts of the day are confused, as you would expect. They are biased, as you would expect, in the media. And at the end of the day, six, eight men are dead. One white man, the rest are black freedmen who have been killed by these white redeemers, these white red shirts who are implementing this Mississippi plan in South Carolina. Many of them, it's rumored later, are just flat out executed. They are captured and executed by, by, the, by the white rioters, whatever you want to call them. Ultimately, what ends up happening here is the, the city of Hamburg, such as it is, is intimidated literally out of existence. It basically disappears. The South Carolina election will, will be close, but thanks to the efforts of the rifle clubs and the wedge shirts and so forth and so on, Wade Hampton will actually win the election. It's disputed, and it really won't be until well into 1877 before it's finally decided. In fact, it's so close that Chamberlain stays in there. He's guarded by Union troops up until the point where the president in 1877 will remove the troops from South Carolina. And we're going to talk at great length about why that happens. He removes the troops from South Carolina, and when he does, Chamberlain realizes he has no he has no chance. Even even if he's right, even if he did win the election, even if the disputed votes are thrown out, even if any of that all that happens, he's if he stays, he's a dead man. And so he decides to pull out. And Wade Hampton the third, a Confederate general a rumored leader amongst the red shirts, a firm believer in the Mississippi plan, becomes governor of the state of, Cal- uh, of, state of South Carolina. Sorry, I almost said North Carolina, California, which wouldn't make any sense. Wade Hampton quickly establishes what you would call, I guess, a Jim Crow-type government in South Carolina, which reverberates again until the 1960s. The men killed in Hamburg are essentially forgotten. There's no no real record of them. Nobody remembers any of this. Nobody talks about any of this. There are newspaper articles that are contemporary, but most of them deal with aren't so much dealing with the fact that men were killed as they are with who's to blame for it. And of course, depending on the slant of the newspaper, it's either those freedmen who were behaving in a manner that was insulting that caused all this to happen, or it was the red shirts that caused all this to happen. The point is that Hamburg, situated on the banks of the Savannah River, founded in 1821 by Henry Schultz, incorporated in 1827. It was the most important interior port in South Carolina, however, until that railroad bridge was built. Now, only ruins remain. And when you go back to that bridge that I showed you in the video at the beginning, right along these streets right in here, there should be a memorial. There should be a monument to these men who died defending their rights in the 15th Amendment, defending their freedoms, defending the idea that anyone should be allowed to vote regardless of their condition, the color of their skins, their previous condition of servitude, any of that. And yet... 
they were forgotten. They were literally ignored. Alan Attaway, Jim Cook, Thomas Merriweather, he was the, the one white man, Albert Meinart, Nelder Parker, Moses Parks, David Phillips, Hampton Stevens. Those men were murdered, murdered for the sole purpose of intimidating black freedmen and Republican whites into not voting, into not expressing their votes, into not exercising their rights as Americans. There is no plaque. There is no memorial for them at the place where they fell. There is a memorial, by the way, but it is over a mile and a half away in John C. Calhoun Park. John C. Calhoun, of course, being a southern secessionist firebrand. The memorials were made, this one in particular, which describes what happened to some degree, but they were never placed at where this actually happened. Why? Because there was great fear that if they did place them there, they would be vandalized. They would be torn down. They would be wrecked by those who did not want that story to be told, who don't want to remember that. And the bridge itself, which remains the new bridge that was built, was dedicated to one Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy if you can believe such a thing as that. Oddly enough, the Jefferson Davis Memorial Bridge stands just downriver from where the original bridge stood that day. You can still see the pylons of that day. What have we learned from this? What, what has changed from any of this? What, has we, what, what do we take from all of this? There was a time in our country when violence was seen as the solution to our racial divide. That we could intimidate people, that we could we could run them down, that we could make them behave the way we wanted them to behave because the attitudes that were pre-Civil War hadn't gone away. And yet there were men who fell defending those causes. And those men were intentionally erased from history so that they could be replaced by a myth Somehow or another, it's somebody else's fault. Somehow or another, it wasn't about racial superiority. It was about a myth of a lost cause. That's what we're going to talk about in the next few weeks. It is 100% our responsibility to document what's happening right now, because if we do not document it, history will say it didn't happen.